Welcome to Christian Natural Health with naturopathic Dr. Lauren DeVille. Christian Natural Health is the podcast on how to get and stay healthy God's way. You'll hear topics on nutrition, exercise, sleep, avoiding toxicity, meditating on scripture, what supplements to take, stress management, defeating anxiety and worry, how to reconcile Eastern medicine approaches with Christianity and a whole lot more. Now, here's your host, Dr. Lauren. Welcome back to another episode of Christian Natural Health. Today, I'm very excited to have Dr. Neil Nathan with us. Dr. Nathan has been practicing medicine for 50 years and has been a board certified, been board certified in family practice and pain management and is a founding diplomat of the American Board of Integrative Health Holistic Medicine. He's written several books, including Healing is Possible, New Hope for Chronic Fatigue, Fibromyalgia, Persistent Pain, and Other Chronic Illnesses, and on Hope and Healing for Those Who Have Fallen Through the Medical Cracks. He's hosted an internationally syndicated radio program and podcast on Voice America called The Cutting Edge of Health and Wellness Today. He's been working to bring an awareness that mold toxicity is a major contributing factor for patients with chronic illness, and he lectures internationally on this subject, which led to the publication of his ebook, Mold and Mycotoxins, Current Evaluation and Treatment in 2016, which is now updated. Um, and then to his best-selling book, Toxic, Heal Your Body from Mold Toxicity, Lyme Disease, Multiple Chemical Sensitivities, and Chronic Environmental Illness. His new book out winter 2021 is energetic diagnosis, a discussion of the value of intuition and energetic devices as an aid to both diagnosis and treatment of medical illness. Dr. Nathan has been treating complex chronic disease, medical illnesses for over 25 years now and Lyme disease for the past 15 years. As his practice has evolved, he finds himself increasingly treating the patients who have become so sensitive and toxic that they can no longer tolerate their usual treatments. And his his major current interest is finding unique ways of helping them to recover. Welcome, Dr. Nathan. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thanks, Lauren. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So um, most of the questions that I have for you are kind of based on your book, Toxic. Can you review some of the dead giveaway symptoms for mold toxicity? Sure. Uh, I think I want to start by um, helping your listeners to understand what a big problem this is that is very underappreciated by the medical profession generally. Right. The it is now estimated that up to 10 million Americans currently suffer with some symptoms of mold toxicity. We're wow. not talking mold allergy. We're talking yeah. mold toxicity. Right. <clears throat> well, it's estimated that up to 50% of all buildings in this country have some degree of mold in them. So it would not be uh, that much of a stretch to think that a lot of people are being affected by it. Yeah, I guess that's true. My goodness, I wasn't aware that it was quite that high. Uh, sometimes it's hard for me to tell because I, it's such a huge percentage of my population, and I think that's my demographic and, and yours, but that's, that's an amazing statistic. Wow. So. So, so first of all, it's really common. Then within that context, mold toxicity causes such a wide array of symptoms that it's very easy to not really jump to the immediate conclusion. But if someone has a wide array of symptoms, mm-hmm. and I'll, the, 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 the array would be um, cognitive issues, difficulty with focus, memory, concentration, brain fog, word finding, um, psychological issues, intense anxiety or depression or OCD or mood swings, respiratory difficulties, things like Asthma-like symptoms, shortness of breath, air hunger, cough, 
-hmm. Intestinal system, um, abdominal pain, diarrhea, constipation, gas, bloating, headache, um, joint pain, muscle pain, uh, paresthesias, which is numbness and tinglings in different parts of the body, um, fatigue, um, and sensitivity to just about everything. And <clears throat> the onset of a new autoimmune process. Mm -hmm. So when someone comes into a doctor's office with a lot of those symptoms, if that physician doesn't know anything about this, they are very likely to say, nobody can have all those symptoms. So this is in your head. And the vast majority of people that I see have been told that repeatedly. And unfortunately, that's a travesty. It's simply not true. The, those people aren't aware of mold or another condition that, can, that does similar things, Lyme disease. Those two categories of illness, <clears throat> mold toxicity and Lyme disease, are very common. It's estimated there, there are 400,000 new cases of Lyme disease every year by the CDC. Wow. So it's not rare either. Yeah. We're talking two different epidemics which have not yet been embraced by the medical profession as being as big an issue as it is. And those patients, unfortunately, are often being told by one physician after another, um, you just need psychological help because nobody could have all of that. Mm -hmm. and, the, and the problem is you can, and both of these are treatable. Mm -hmm. So we're missing an opportunity to really help people who are suffering because we're telling them this is in your head and that's not the case. Sure. Yeah. So, so that's my overview, Lauren. Yeah. There are specific symptoms that are an immediate tip-off to mold. Okay. One of them is patients will complain of the perception of an internal vibration. Mm -hmm. They're not vibrating, vibrating on the outside. You can't see a tremor. You can't see that vibration, but they feel it. Mm -hmm. And again, that's the kind of thing when they tell a physician about it, they go, well, right, okay, now I know you need a, um, an SSRI or an anti-anxiety medication. But no, the things that cause that are mold toxicity or Bartonella, which is a co-infection of Lyme disease. Um, ice pick type pains, electrical <clears throat> sensations or pains, those are classical for mold toxicity. When someone has a new onset of anxiety or depression, mm. and then they've, they've been a solid citizen all their life, never had that, and all of a sudden, they're anxious for reasons that aren't related to having an IRS audit or the in-laws over for the weekend. Um, it's not situational. It just comes out of the blue. Mm -hmm. Think mold toxicity. Also, by the way, think Bartonella. Mm -hmm. If you have been diagnosed with a condition that is called by the specialist atypical, atypical rheumatoid arthritis, atypical ALS, atypical Alzheimer's, atypical MS, mm -hmm. um, uh, atypical Parkinson's disease. When I hear the word atypical in my specialist's comment, they're aware that the features of this illness don't really match their usual diagnosis. 
but they don't always know what that is. So if you hear the word atypical, then okay, maybe we should be thinking about mold toxicity. Yeah, yeah, start going down that path. So, um, and one of, it's, it's interesting that <coughs> present so similarly, and yet there's also similar like biotoxin testing that can present for both. So the, the biotoxin markers, TGF, beta one, C4A, C3A, are those pretty much dead giveaway that we're dealing with mold or one of the co-infections or Lyme, or are there other things that you sometimes think about as possibilities there? Those markers are helpful in telling us that there's inflammation, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't tell us what the source of that inflammation is. So if you have elevated markers, it tells us something is going on. This is not in your head, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't identify the source. Right, right, okay. So, and then where do you go from there? Once you have somebody present with these symptoms, you have maybe the biotoxin markers come up. And by the way, how often do you use the other biotoxin markers like MMP9, MSH, VIP, VEGF, those kinds of things too? I don't use them much at all. Um, I did years ago when I started working with Dr. Shoemaker, who put a lot of this on the map. Um, Back then, we didn't have the tests that are available now. Mm -hmm. And so I did a lot of that testing in the early days. But it became very clear that we have better testing separately for mold toxicity or for Lyme disease or for co-infections. So the best testing, in my opinion, for mold toxicity is the urine mycotoxin test. Simple test. You just collect a morning urine, you mail it in for analysis. And if there are mycotoxins or mold toxins in your urine, they don't belong there. So we have our diagnosis. Not only do we have our diagnosis, but we also have outlined our treatment because the different toxins are treated and differently. Mm-hmm. We can go over that in some more detail later. So we have the diagnosis and we have the treatment laid out with a simple urine test that anybody can do. That's my starting point. Gotcha, gotcha. And then what about Lyme? So what is, what is your favorite Lyme test at the moment? Which one do you usually use? Lyme and infections. The two best labs in the country from my perspective are Igenix. Mm-hmm. or Infecto Labs. They use, yep, it's a, it's a laboratory in Minnesota that is derived from the Armin Labs from Germany. Mm-hmm. And um, basically someone from the Armin company moved the test to Minnesota where it's now available. Mm-hmm. It's a somewhat different test than Igenix, mm-hmm. but I, I think equally accurate. Gotcha. There's a number of other tests on the market that I don't think are very accurate at all. Okay. So then, so do you typically, I guess, depending on the presenting symptoms, then you'll decide which of those tests you begin with in order to see which direction we go. Plus the story, I'm sure. Correct. How likely that we're dealing with. Okay. So um, how do you tell the difference or is it important to tell the difference between somebody who has actual fungal organisms still in them versus leftover mycotoxins from a previous exposure? Would you treat those cases differently or does it matter? It does matter. Okay. Um, If you catch, if someone is living in a moldy environment, Mm -hmm. there is a window in which they have toxins in their body, but they haven't colonized where the mold actually starts growing in their GI tract or sinus area or both. Mm -hmm. Get that window. If you can treat them in that window with what we call binders alone, you may be able to cure them without doing anything else. Mm -hmm. So... That's great. 
Unfortunately, the vast majority of people who have mold exposure don't get the diagnosis until years later because they, they go to their doctors and they say, oh, mold doesn't do that or no, that's not possible. Or it hasn't even dawned on anyone to ask someone about mold. Okay. So I can't count the number of times when I bring the subject up, someone says, well, I, I don't think I am living in a moldy environment, nor have I been. Right. And, but the seed is planted. They'll come back for their second visit and they'll go, you know, I did live in a basement two years ago and there was black stuff growing all over the walls. And it's super common for people, once they start thinking about it, to realize, you know, I really have had mold exposure in the past. Right. But then the second comment is, oh, but I'm not now. So that's certainly not a problem. <clears throat> no, if you were exposed in the past, that mold may have started growing in you, which we call colonization, and you're carrying it with you. So you may move to a safe environment and you still can have mold toxicity and still needs to be treated. Mm -hmm. So to come back to your original question, not everyone needs to be treated. In my experience, again, in my practice, I would say that 90, 95% of people have colonized so that most people will need to have antifungal treatment for either the sinus or the gut area or both if they're going to get well. So, and how can you tell if somebody <clears throat> versus do you just try binders? And if that's insufficient, then you go with the antifungals as well. Yeah, there's a couple of ways to tell, none of them being particularly good, but there are ways to tell. One is there is a weak test that Great Plains have, which they call an oat test, or the first section of the oat test is called the moat test, which is specifically the fungal elements. And some of those are metabolites of mold that strongly suggest that they have colonized, that it's growing in you. But it's a weak test. It will occasionally show it. But if it's negative, by no means does it mean that it ruled it out. But that's helpful. If those things are clearly positive, it points us definitely in that direction. Another component of, the, of that test is a metabolite called arabinose which if that's elevated, that's strongly indicative that there's candida in there along with mold. Gotcha. Okay. Gotcha. Other than that, we have virtually no test that can tell us with scientific clarity that you colonize. Mm -hmm. What I typically do is I'll start people on binders. Mm -hmm. If they are profoundly better in a short period of time, I may not put them on antifungals. I may just let the binders work Mm -hmm. And that may completely clear up a small percentage of the people that I work with, mm -hmm. which is great. If I don't need to go to antifungals, we're not going to antifungals. Okay. But for most people, they will do the binders, mm -hmm. they'll get a little bit better, mm -hmm. or they will tread water, they'll, they'll stabilize at, I don't know, 30, 50% better, but still nowhere near where they want to be. And it's really clear that something is impeding their ability to get well. Mm -hmm. And often it's because they've colonized and we need to treat that. Gotcha, okay. And what about the nasal swabs when you're doing the fungal swab? Will that basically, is that the way you determine if it's in the nose as well? No, no very, very weak test. Um, ENT physicians forever have been reluctant to do nasal swabs 
for culturing mold or fungus because the yield is so low. Mm-hmm. In, in patients with known fungus in their sinuses, the yield is less than 10%. So, it, it, so it's just not a good test. It, and it, it gives people the wrong impression if they do insist on it being done. You need to know that if it's positive, great. We have information to work with, but it's very likely to be negative. <clears throat> and so if somebody gets Marcon's kind of going down that road a little bit, uh, Marcon's the bacterial overgrowth in the nose that's connected with, with mold and biotoxin for the listeners. Um, do you automatically treat the fungi assuming it's there then typically as, as part of the same? No, no. You watch me shaking my head here. Okay. Yeah. Um, I don't think that Marcon's matters at all. Ah, okay. Uh, okay. When I first started working with Dr. Shoemaker, um, he believes that it's super important. And I know that he and Dr. Heyman teach that as a major part of how they approach mold as an issue. I worked very closely with him. We did super aggressive treatment of Marcon's for years in the early days. And what I observed is that even with two years of aggressive antibiotic and nasal spray treatment, most people, you couldn't eradicate it. And if, it did, if you did clear it, if you checked it again, it came right back. <clears throat> so Dr. Shoemaker admitted to me after a few years, I came to him and I went, Richie, um, I can't eradicate this stuff. And I don't even see any clinical improvement when I try. Mm-hmm. He said, you know, yeah, he said, that's correct. That's the same thing. Marcon's is not an infection per se. It's what's called a commensural, meaning it just lives there. Yeah. And although on theoretical grounds, he believes that it interferes with mold treatment, the, the majority of us who work in the field have not had the same experience. Mm-hmm. So years ago, I stopped looking for it and I stopped treating it specifically. So honestly, I don't think it matters. Yeah. Um, and but you do still use the nasal antifungals at times, though. Oh yeah, I do. Okay. Because so- the the two major areas of colonization are the sinus and gut areas. Okay. One of the things um, early on, uh, the Dr. Joe Brewer discovered. Uh, Joe is a an infectious disease specialist from Kansas City, who wrote some of the top notch early papers on how to approach mold toxicity and how to treat it. Mm-hmm. And Joe found that many patients wouldn't get well until we treated the sinus and gut areas. Mm-hmm. And he wrote a couple of papers showing the improvement that he got by treating 100 consecutive patients with amphotericin B as a nasal spray yeah. and nystatin as a nasal spray. Mm-hmm. And in both cases, and with the amphotericin B, there was a 94% cure rate. And with the um, nystatin, there was an 89% cure rate. So that the vast majority of patients, when, when they do get antifungal treatment, makes a profound difference in their treatment. Um, and so for other people that maybe you'll be doing binders and they don't totally get well, how does genetic susceptibility play into this? Again, that's an issue that Dr. Shoemaker thinks is very important, but I don't. Okay. Again, I did a ton of those when we first started working with them. Mm-hmm. And what I saw was 
the people who had the supposedly bad genes that mm -hmm. predisposed to having mold toxicity, it didn't change one bit about their response to treatment. Mm -hmm. The people with the supposedly bad genes mm -hmm. um, often responded really well and quickly to treatment. And mm -hmm. some people who didn't have the genes um, really languished. So it became clear to me, and again, the vast majority of people who work in this field don't agree with Dr. Shoemaker that that's important. There are some who do, I'll grant you that, but I haven't seen that as clinically relevant. Um, it's sometimes used an excuse to, well, you can't get well because you're genetically messed up. Oh yeah. And I hate that because oh, yeah. it's not true. In my, in my experience, um, having treated three or 4,000 people this way successfully, it doesn't matter. If you treat someone correctly, they're gonna get well. So back to the binder question, you mentioned that different binders apply to different mycotoxins. So can you give us a quick rundown? Like when would you use uh, cholesteramine or Wellcol? And when would you use charcoal? When would you use Saccharomyces, NAC, sure. all those kinds of things? That's a bit much probably for the audience, but <clears throat> um, those tables are listed in my book, by the way, Toxic, if you want to explore that in more detail. But for okra toxin, which is one of the most common, the best binders are either cholestyramine or Wellcol, which are prescription medications. Activated charcoal does work, but it's weak. For trichothecene and aflatoxin, the best binders are bentonite clay, activated charcoal, and chlorella. Mm -hmm. For gliotoxin and zeoralanone, the best binders are bentonite clay and the good probiotic yeast, Saccharomyces boulardii. Mm -hmm. So that by knowing what you're dealing with, you can make up a comprehensive binder program to know that you're pulling out of the body everything that's there. If you don't have that information and you simply give a binder, mm -hmm. then you're just hoping that that's the one that's in their body and it's going to work. Mm -hmm. sure. And to what degree have you found mycotoxins in food to be an issue? Like, are you a proponent of the low lectin diet or anything like that? No, I, <laughs> I'm not. Mm -hmm. um, mold toxin messes with, with leptin mm -hmm. so that... Um, going on a low leptin diet doesn't make much difference until you get what's causing it out of the body, which mm -hmm. is the mold toxicity. Once you get that out of the body, then people who've been gaining weight in a way that is very upsetting to them can, can lose it again and go back to being that healthy weight that they were previously. Um, I don't think that mold in food matters much at all. Mm -hmm. There are reported cases, which some people point to, of epidemics of mold toxicity in people who've got into moldy batches of peanuts or things of that nature or grain. Mm -hmm. But to the, to the largest extent, I don't think that food affects it much. Again, I know that there are physicians who make a big deal about it. I did a study, a small one, we didn't have the funding for it, with Great Plains two years ago, in which we had people, uh, and by the way, this is the only study I know that's ever been done and, and on this subject. We took patients who had mold toxicity and 
we had them avoid all the foods that we know could contain mold for 10 days. And we then measured the urine mycotoxin test. Then we had them pig out on those foods for 10 days and see how it affected their, their mycotoxin levels. Somewhat to our surprise, seven of the eight people in the study, their mycotoxin levels dropped on eating supposedly moldy food. Wow. One patient had a slight increase in okra toxin only in doing so. So with the little bit of data we have and with a ton of clinical experience, I don't think that mold in food is the issue. It's mold in, it's mold in your living environment that is the issue. Um, and so before testing, uh, before doing mycotoxin testing, do you feel it's important to do something to pull the mycotoxins out of the system, sauna, NAC, glutathione, something like that? That's helpful in treatment, but I think the, the basics of treatment are simply threefold. Number one, you want to be sure that the patient evaluates their environment, home, work, car sometimes, to be sure that there isn't any mold toxins in their, in their environment. Mm-hmm. If there is, they won't get well. You, you can get better, but you cannot get well if you're living in a moldy environment. It's absolutely not possible. I would say that that's the one thing that all people who treat mold completely agree on, you know, non-negotiable. Mm-hmm. Is that a problem for a lot of people? A huge one. Many people are not in a position to move to get a new home or even afford remediation. So it's a huge problem, but it is one that is must be addressed because otherwise we're not going anywhere. Mm-hmm. Second, we use the correct binders mm-hmm. so that we're pulling toxins out of the body. And third, we then use antifungals. Mm-hmm. Different patients have different needs to improve their ability to detoxify which is what I think you're addressing here. Mm -hmm. So um, how hard do people need to work on it? It varies. People who have a strong constitution are often able to do that without focusing on that particularly. Mm -hmm. People who are more sensitive often have to do a lot of preparatory work to get their body detoxifying better Mm -hmm. so that they function better. Mm -hmm. Virtually everybody who has mold toxicity will benefit from a sauna, say. Mm-hmm. So it is a great way to get toxins out of the body. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But so you don't necessarily recommend doing sauna or glutathione prior to testing in order to feel like the test. Oh, okay. Sorry. I missed that part of it. So when people have mold toxicity, mold toxin interferes with their ability to detoxify. Mm-hmm. What that means in English is that if you have a boatload of mold in your body, Mm-hmm. Mold toxin will prevent you from excreting it into your urine so that what shows up in the urine will be a small piece of what's really there. So the first test we get on a urine mycotoxin test mm-hmm. is going to be what I call tip of the iceberg. Mm-hmm. It will show it. It'll tell us what's there, but not to the extent it's there. Mm-hmm. So the vast majority of people, over 80%, when they're getting better, when they're getting treated, when you repeat their test, they will get higher numbers the next time. Mm-hmm. And if I don't warn them about it, they're gonna get freaked out. Yeah. They're gonna go, oh, come on, Neil, 
I'm doing everything you asked me to do. How, how is that possible? And the answer is, this is great. Now you're detoxifying better. You're able to get more of this into your urine. This is great, not a problem. And by the way, you did notice, by the way, that you were a lot better, right? Mm -hmm. So not a problem. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So given that, what, what Dr. Brewer and I discovered early on when we began using the urine, the new urine mycotoxin test when it first came on the market, was that our really sick patients, and, and they were living in mold, they had every symptom of mold, they had every reason to believe they had mold toxicity, and they sometimes had completely negative urine tests. Mm -hmm. and, we, and we went, you know, what? Um, what we realized was it was about this aspect of detoxification. Mm -hmm. So realizing that we were missing the diagnosis, we then added glutathione and a sauna mm -hmm. to, the treat, to the testing. Mm -hmm. So that for most people, and I'll come back to that in a second, taking glutathione 500 milligrams twice a day for a week, before they collect their urine gives us a much more accurate answer. Mm -hmm. If they will also do a sauna or a hot bath or a hot tub, mm -hmm. sweating the night before they take their urine also will get better answer. Mm -hmm. Both is best, either is excellent because some of our very sensitive patients can't take a sauna without getting really sick. And some of them can't take glutathione mm -hmm. without getting really sick. Right. Because it mobilizes toxin faster than their body can process it. Mm -hmm. That's what I, that's actually what we're using it for. But when that happens, that means, uh oh, th this is not going to work. So if someone is taking glutathione as a part of doing the test correctly, and they get a clear exacerbation of their symptoms, then it's like, okay, stop the glutathione, collect your urine now. Mm -hmm. I, I, I know we've already provoked this adequately because you're worse. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and speaking of the sulfur metabolism concept, so you've mentioned in your book that um, your sulfur metabolism can shift from using cysteine to make glutathione to instead shifting it to make hydrogen sulfide and taurine. So how does that kind of play into this and how do you reverse it? That's a very good and somewhat tricky question. Mm -hmm. So part of... Uh, through Dr. Navio's model of the cell danger response, mm -hmm. which is a brilliant way of understanding chronic illness of almost every type. Mm -hmm. One of the first things that happens when cells recognize danger mm -hmm. in the form of a toxin or an infectious agent, mm -hmm. one of the first things they do is they shut down methylation, mm -hmm. which is the process by which we make glutathione. Now, they do it, giving you an example. If you had a viral infection, mm -hmm. viruses need to hijack our chemistry to replicate, to grow. Mm -hmm. And so they have to hijack methylation mm -hmm. to grow. So one of the things that human beings have evolved over the centuries is shutting down methylation to prevent an infectious agent from hijacking our chemistry and working with it. So we intentionally shut down methylation in order to survive, in order to deal with whatever is affecting us. 
But when the process doesn't go away, when we have an inflammatory process like mold or Lyme that just keeps cranking along because we haven't cured it, then we have methylation shutdown for a long period of time. If that's the case, we can hopefully support that by taking um, B12 and folate. Uh, my preferred methods are to use hydroxy B12 and 5-methyl tetrahydrofolate to support methylation and improve our ability to methylate. And if someone can do that, that's great and something I like to do early on. So you heard me say if. In my sensitive patients, at least 50% of them, when they improve methylation, they're again mobilizing toxin faster than they can process it and it makes them worse, often much worse. So well over 50% of the people that I treat, my sensitive patients, can't support methylation until we're further along in treatment. Mm -hmm. So once we get the toxin levels down, once they're beginning to move into the healing phase, at that point, then we can address methylation. So it's a tricky question. It isn't a simple, everybody needs to support it. It's, is my patient capable of supporting it? Do it at the right timing. Yeah. Gotcha. So is there anything I have not asked you that you want to make sure that you leave with our audience? Gosh, we could talk about this for days. I often do. Um, <laughs> it really depends on what your listening audience wants to know. Mm -hmm. I think we've covered some of the basics about how prevalent it is, mm -hmm. the kind of symptoms to look for, how we diagnose it, um, mm -hmm. how we treat it, how we look at mold in the environment, mm -hmm. how we test for it. I think those are really the basics that I think um, not everyone needs to know. But if you have a family member, a loved one, or yourself, you're dealing with an issue that hasn't been diagnosed, then mm -hmm. the key is, Yes, we can do this. And my take home message is this is treatable. Absolutely. Absolutely. So where can people go to learn more about you? My website, neilnathanmd.com mm -hmm. has um, information. I've got a bunches of newsletters, blogs. Um, if you want to consult with me, I'm still consulting. Um, but I do require that you have your own physician to work with me on the consult so that they can be taking care of the day-to-day -day issues. I, I, I'm currently consulting with about 500 people and I can't answer everybody's email the way you might like me to. Um, another thing that I offer for those of you out there who are physicians is I do have a mentorship program where um, with a fabulous naturopath named Jill Krista. We teach physicians to how to approach this in the, in the comprehensive way. It's not just about mold, it's about mold, Lyme, other infections, mm -hmm. environmental toxicities, helping people to put this all together so that they can more effectively treat their patients. And, and we currently have maybe 150 physicians in our mentorship group. Um, anyone who um, is a physician is welcome to join us. We always have room for it. Mm 
Mm -hmm. um, so if you're interested, there is information on the mentorship program on my website, and uh, we're happy to share what we know, um, like we're doing right now. Fantastic. Well, I will link to that in the show notes. And thank you so much for all of your time and wisdom, Dr. Nathan. Really appreciate it. Okay. You're very welcome, Lauren. Thanks for having me. Are you looking for a holistically minded healthcare practitioner who truly treats root cause rather than symptom suppression? Unfortunately, even in the alternative healing professions, this isn't a given. That's why I've created wholehealthdoctor.com, a resource to help connect patients to healthcare practitioners in their area who share a root cause philosophy. Alternatively, most of the practitioners listed also practice telehealth. So if there isn't anyone local to you, you can still find a great practitioner to help you regain optimal health. Go to wholehealthdoctor.com. That's whole healthdr.com, type in your location or just the specialty that you're looking for and find the practitioner who's right for you. Thanks for listening to Christian Natural Health. This show is run by you. So please write in with topic and guest suggestions for future shows. For more great content, subscribe to Dr. Lauren's blog at www.drlaurendeville.com or follow her on Facebook or Twitter at Dr. Lauren DeVille. If you enjoyed the show, don't forget to share it with your friends and give us a five-star rating in iTunes. It really helps us to stand out so other people can discover great content as well. Have a great week and God bless you. Hey everybody, I'm Dale. And I'm Tamara. And we're hosts of the Kynos Project podcast where we help you tackle ancient Christian truths in everyday settings. The word kainos means new, and that's exactly what we want to do on our podcast. Bring something new from what is old in our faith. And on this show, you might hear us explore topics like what the Bible has to say about student loan forgiveness, discuss how the satanic temple affects our view of religious liberty in America, or even question why is it that so many people are having rapture anxiety. To learn more about the podcast, go to lifeaudio.com.